So given, given the things that have happened this week, uh, the unrest, uh, the rioting, the, pro, the peaceful protests, um, <laughs> the endless nuanced arguments between Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, um, there's, sometimes there's like, you feel like you're walking a tight line. Because the second you say one thing, it's politically charged with five different meanings, whether you mean that or not. And so it's generally um, my philosophy not to talk politics. Because the few times that I ever have has had extreme reactions. However... um, Here's what I've realized as I've gotten older. So in your 20s, like, you're very opinionated, and every, the world has to be this way or that way. Um, in my 30s, the world's become a lot more complex, and sometimes there isn't this way or that way. It's sort of a mix of the two, and you're less opinionated because you don't feel like you have to be known for what you think. Um, so I know in the past, sometimes I've said things to rile people up, if you've been here for a long time. I don't think I've done that in a long time, and I don't plan to. Um, but here's what I've learned. That the Bible is political. It's about the kingdom of God. And if God's a king and he has a kingdom, that's politics. However, already I've been misunderstood. Because what I'm not saying is that the Bible is partisan. The gospel is not about partisan politics. It's about the politics of the kingdom of God. That's what it preaches. That's what it's my job to preach. So do you know what that means? If I preach the politics of the kingdom of God, it means that I will at times sound a little bit too liberal. Or at times I will sound a little bit too conservative. Because the kingdom of God does not take a side. It isn't America. We are not the kingdom of God. And God doesn't actually vote. He permits leadership, right? And we believe that he appoints people in office for seasons. Okay, but God doesn't vote, right? Because God actually already voted. You know Psalm chapter 2? It says that the nations are, it's just like today, the nations are raging and, and almost says rioting, but it's like the oceans of the seas, the image it gives us, and they're raging. And there it says, but God who sits in the heavens laughs. And then it says, I have already appointed my king in Zion. And that passage, today you've become my son, Um, That passage, the New Testament quotes several times in reference to Jesus. Psalm chapter 2 tells us that God has already voted, and he's already anointed his king. It's Jesus. So we cannot pretend that there's another Messiah or another anointed one. We follow Jesus. Bottom line. So I want you to know, as your pastor, I think this, right now this moment kind of raises the question for everyone, what side of the fence are you on? Suddenly you're like, oh, we were all Christians, we all accepted each other, but suddenly you're like a lot more democratic than I thought, and you're a lot more Republican, you're an elephant, you're a donkey, and I've seen this on Facebook. Um, 
I don't like that. And so I want you to know what to expect from me as a pastor. I'm never going to push my partisan political agenda on you guys, ever. Because where I lean, you know what? That's just a preference. But what I will push is the kingdom of God. And that's, that's what you can expect. Now, please, please understand. If it ever feels like it steps on your toes, that's not me attacking your politics. That's the kingdom of God saying, maybe you need to rethink where you are in life, okay? So I will never intentionally push on your um, American politics. So, to, so I hope that's clear and that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I've always, I remember Barna came out with a study, I don't know, this was while I was in school, um, in the school of ministry, and it said, uh, the majority of Americans find Christianity too political. So we were trained to avoid politics, so I always thought politics, whatever, don't matter. But then I was like, wait, but Jesus is super political because he has a kingdom. And he's literally campaigning when he's on earth. The kingdom of God is at hand. Watch what I do. And he's challenging the political structures of Rome, who crucify him, and the political structures of the Israel's religious leaders, who collaborate with the Romans to crucify him. So he upsets both political spectrums of his day. I expect that true Christians who adopt the Bible as their worldview will upset both ends of the political spectrum. So... There you have it. I'm not picking on you. If you want to send me emails, that's fine. I always read them and I always reply. But don't think I am specifically trying to convert people when we're there. I, I'm cared, I want to convert people to the kingdom of God. That's it, okay? That's, that's it. All right, I think I've said enough. So now we're in Psalm 133. I'm bringing this up because this is a passage about unity. And while I think so many people, I've seen people have chosen passages to talk about racism right now because of the moment, we happen to be in a passage that begs the discussion. So this will not be a, ta- a message about racism, but it will be a message about people belonging and where we all fit in the world and life, because that's what the psalm talks about, all right? All right, let's pray for the word. Um, Lord, we ask that as we now come to your scriptures that you will speak to us You will speak through your word, and that it would be your word that resonates with us. Um, And Lord, in as many ways possible, that I would become just the medium, not um, that I wouldn't be the focal point. And so I ask that you give us eyes to see your world the way you do. And you give us a heart to break for your, your world the way that you do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Question, which is more deadly? Smoking 15 cigarettes a day or loneliness? And now you know where this is going. It's actually shown in studies that loneliness is as hazardous to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. What? We often don't think of that as a big deal, but loneliness is a very big deal to our humanity because we were made to live with people. 15 cigarettes a day, that's really unhealthy. Loneliness can also uh, give you a 50% higher chance of dying earlier than you should. Loneliness is a problem because it kills. And 
yes, there's, you know, our phrase, give me liberty or give me death. That's America. Um, But there's also another ultimatum. Give us unity or give us death. Because if we don't have unity, we have loneliness. And loneliness will bring us death. Well, all of this started in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and their sin caused them to want to hide from God. Their sin caused them to feel like God would be upset with what they had done, so they were going to run from him and hide from him. So there they are in the trees, away from the presence of God. They're covering themselves up with fig leaves so that they wouldn't be seen for who they are. God has to call out to them, where are you? I am right where I thought you would be waiting for me and you're not here. They drove themselves away from the presence of God. Then they finally come crawling, shall we say, slithering out of the trees to God, where the serpent is there too. And he says, okay, so what, what, what happened? In other words, um, if you want to confess, I'll forgive you. But they say, you know, they point at each other. They point at the serpent. They point at God, the woman you gave me. They're pointing everywhere. And as a result, they are exiled from the garden. Exile. We think of Israel's exile when they lose their city, their kingdom, their temple, and they live in another land. Friends, that story about Israel is our story. Because we have been exiled with Adam and Eve from the great garden of God's presence. We are isolated. We are lonely. And there have been responses to this throughout the history of the world. Look at right after Genesis chapter 3. Uh, not right after, but very soon, you have Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Hey, why should we be scattered about? Let's be together. We're all so lonely. We feel insignificant. We need something that we've been removed from. So they try to make their own Garden of Eden. They build up this great tower. But you know what the problem with the Tower of Babel was? Unity didn't happen there because it was not a place of unity. It was a place of sameness. You had to be just like us to belong to the Tower of Babel. You had to speak our language. God says, this is not good. Humanity is not supposed to be a blanket of sameness. I will scatter them by changing their languages. Now there's diversity. Well, um, in 2018, the United Kingdom actually appointed a minister of loneliness because they found that over half of the people over the age of 75, that's 2 million people in England, over half of them lived alone and had um, only, or they would go either a few days or a few weeks without any meaningful social interaction. So they said, this is a problem. This is not good for, human, for humanity's health. Let's appoint a minister of loneliness. Okay, Babel didn't work. Is government going to fix this? Probably not. It's just a safe guess. Um, But then we try to solve this problem on our own. I'm lonely. Now, you may have experienced this while you were in lockdown, um, but you tend to try to get company through consumption. So you tend to eat ice cream. (laughs) 
No joke. Actually, one doctor said this. Is it any wonder that we turn to ice cream and other fatty foods when we're sitting at home feeling all alone in the world? And it actually seems to resonate. It's true. When I feel loneliness, loneliest in life, I tend to find food a great friend. Isn't it? It's always there for you. It won't let you down till much later. (laughs) And it, it just feels satisfying. And you know, a bowl of ice cream while I'm on the sofa watching the latest show or whatever I'm watching, it listens so well to me. It does. I get to do all the talking. Mmm, you're delicious. And, but it's, it has been shown, studies have shown that we actually do consume more when we're lonely, food. We actually consume more sex, uh, unsafe sex. Obviously, if you have a spouse, that's a good thing to do, but... Um, many people seek out sex when they're lonely. They will actually show, it's been shown that they'll seek out speeding because we're trying to find companionship in something we can control. And then um, the song from the Beatles came to my mind this week. All the lonely people, where do they come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? And it makes you wonder, right? Where does Eleanor Rigby Rigby belong? Where does Father Mackenzie belong? Where does George Floyd belong? Where does Pastor Brandon belong? Where do you belong? That's where our psalm comes in. And the psalm answers, all of them belong in the kingdom of God. Everybody belongs in the kingdom of God. There's no exclusions. Not everybody's going to take up the offer, but everybody belongs. Enough already. Let's go to Psalm 133. A song of ascent. So again, this is, um, there's the 15 Psalms mimicking the 15 steps up to the temple of God because the pilgrims would sing this on their way up to the temple of God. The songs would keep them together. The songs would keep them entertained. The psalms would remind them of the blessing that awaits them. Because there's also 15 words in that ironic blessing. The Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. The Hebrew has 15 words. So these 15 psalms also lace within them segments of that blessing. As you'll see in tonight's passage, it says... Um, blessing here. So the bless, may the Lord bless you is in this psalm. So there's 15 psalms of ascent. This is one of the four that are of David. And it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That is what's good. When brothers dwell and sisters dwell in unity. Now, um, there's a couple of things here. The New King James says brothers dwell together in unity. Um, that's fine. Um, it's a little redundant, but that's, that's kind of what the Hebrew's saying. Um, but also, the ESV excludes um, one of the words, how. It says, how good and pleasant it is. I added the second how, how good and how pleasant, like the New King James does, because the Hebrew actually has two hows. Now, that's, that's important because it shows one Hebrew Um, interpreter was saying it shows the emphasis here when you say look behold uh, turn your eyes and see this 
how good and how pleasant. It's not just how good and pleasant. It's how good, how pleasant. So this, in other words, is really, really worth a look at. It's really emphasized what the psalmist is seeing, what David is seeing. How good and how pleasant. Now, these two words are beautiful. The word good is the same word. You might remember this from a few weeks ago. It's the word tov. Do you remember? Is this recalling anything? The word tov, that's the same word in Genesis 1 when God would create and after every day he would say, it was good. That's the word tov. Behold how tov, how good. So in other words, this word good is connected to God's creation. So when God says, my creation is very good, so is this unity. He smiles upon our unity the same way he smiles upon his creation. And maybe I'm going on a limb, but I would almost, I would suggest that you could just simply say, look, if, if this is the same kind of good as his creation, then this is Edenic. Our unity, our dwelling together is Edenic, like the world God originally created. Think about this. If you read it, like, behold how Edenic it is when brothers dwell together. Or put it another way, behold how God ordained, how God purposed it is. Or behold how in unison it is with the original creation God intended for humanity it is, long phrase, when we dwell together. That's the idea here behind good. It's not just thumbs up. It's God's thumb, his green thumb, his creating thumb, that kind of thumbs up. Behold how good, how Edenic, how God-ordained it is. But then there's the word pleasant. word pleasant is just, it's a broad, beautiful word. So um, ESV says pleasant, but if you go and look this up, uh, the Hebrew word, you'll see there's other ways to interpret this word. It can also be interpreted as beautiful. And Song of Solomon uses this word to say, you are, you are beautiful, my beloved. It gives you an idea, a love poem. That kind of beauty is going on here. So behold how beautiful it is when we are in unity. Um, it also can mean, this one caught me off guard, and I loved it. It also can mean how musical. Behold how musical it is when brothers dwell together. And I love that, because now I see people arm in arm, skipping through a field of poppies, singing God's praises. Um, if you don't like that image, just think how music works. Music works when a variety of components come together and follow the same conductor, right? And it's best when you listen to Beethoven with the wind instruments like the flutes, um, the brass like the horn and the trombone, with the percussion, and the stringed instruments like the cellos and the violas and the violins, and the keys like the piano. It's best when you hear all of that, but sometimes what you get is you hear a darn French horn is blowing over everybody. All I hear is that's not very beautiful, is it? When it says how musical it is, it's because everything is coming together and finding its place, and it's all in balance. Isn't that a wonderful metaphor? 
for what it's saying. Behold, how Edenic and how musical it is when we dwell together in unity. And now you can go back and say, yes, it is, because our loneliness, part of the curse of, being, of, of leaving the garden, that loneliness is finding its healing when God's people come together. No, no. The, lone, the minister of loneliness is not the answer. Babel is not the answer. The things I can stuff my life with is not the answer. A new boyfriend, girlfriend, home, car, whatever is not the answer. But the fellowship of God's people under his kingship is the answer. That is where we find the goodness we lost, the musical notes that we went, well, we got very dissonant, didn't we? We started playing hip-hop when God was conducting Bach. Nothing wrong with hip-hop, but it's not exactly what the conductor of Bach is looking for. All right. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So let's sum up this first verse with this. Unity is heavenly. Unity is heavenly. It's the substance of God's dwelling place. That's why it's heavenly. Unity is what we have to look forward to in heaven. Unity will bring the experience, as close as we can get, the experience of heaven into our lives. Unity is heavenly. But now the psalm will continue to show us more about unity. And it gets a little, the metaphors are ancient, but I'll help you see them, okay? Verse 2. It, so the it here is unity, okay? It, the unity, is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. <laughs> That's what unity's like? So, I don't know about you, but I tend to not like to get oily. <laughs> now, I don't know how many of you skipped showers a few times during lockdown. Um, I can go one day without... Well, okay, actually, honestly, I have to shower every day because you don't know what beard bed beard looks like. You've seen bedhead, but you don't know what bed beard looks like, so you have to shower that off. There's no combing that away. Um, but if you don't have to go out, and you got this thing sticking out here, and it doesn't matter, I can stand about one day of not showering, but by day two, ooh, that's oil. That's gross. I don't like that. So this image of oil coming down the head, no, thank you, and then down the beard. And it's, it's so thick that it's, it's running down. It's not just coagulating on my forehead, which it tends to do anyways, but it's, it's actually running down. And then it's getting on the collar of his priestly robes. You're like, ah, oh, what is going on here? Here's what's going on. In a time when you don't have lotion and in a time when you don't have instant hot water showers at your, yeah, disposal, availability, um, Often what you would use is oil, and oil is a luxury. And so what you do is you, you would put somebody in oil, and then you would scrape the oil off. That would bring all the dirt with it. Squeegee <laughs> them, someone said. Um, so that would, also, that would bring a lot of the, the dirt off, but it would also moisturize the skin. It was a really good thing to have. But that's not exactly what it's saying. I'm just trying to put in perspective how an older day would have looked oil all over me. 
Yeah, no, actually, that would have been appropriate for them. Um, but in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12, it's going to be very quick, so you can jot this down. Leviticus 8, 12 says this, that Moses poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Okay, what's going on there? So, Israel was released from their captivity in Egypt. They went through the wilderness, and in the wilderness, God tells them to build a tent so that he can live among them. It's a precursor to the temple. And there, um, it's all made. In Exodus 14, we see it's all built. God's presence comes and fills the tabernacle. Then Leviticus opens, and God gives them the rules on how to operate my tabernacle lest you die. And part of this was anointing or consecrating or making them set apart for the specific purpose of functioning the sacrifices in the temple. These are called the priests. Aaron, Moses' brother, was going to be the high priest, and he would oversee all the priests. So the priest's role was to stand between the people of Israel and the God of heaven. So the people of earth and the God of heaven, the priests were the bridge between the two. Okay? Now, Before the first sacrifice was offered, Aaron had oil poured upon his head. He was set apart. Okay. This oil um, becomes a picture you probably have heard and know of the Holy Spirit descending upon his people. So here in our day and age, God has given us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and becomes our setting apart, our anointing for his work. He has called his people to be the priests between the humans of earth and the God of heaven. Just like Jesus was that bridge, he's now made us his body. We're called in the New Testament his temple because we are that bridge. And so we are a kingdom of priests. We looked briefly at last week and we'll look at it in a minute. We are a kingdom of priests. What we're seeing in this verse here is that unity we saw as heavenly, but now we're seeing, second, that unity is priestly. We cannot have unity unless we see each other as ordained by God to have a place in his kingdom. Unity breaks apart the minute we say, well, I mean, yeah, there are Sunday night Christians and then there's everybody else. It breaks down when that happens. Or there are those who come for dinner and stay for the service and those who leave. What we need to do is see that everybody God puts in our path, he has put his blessing on. He's put himself into And unity can only happen when we see each other as anointed with God's spirit. So the minute I begin to treat us with rank, we're actually losing unity. I have to understand that Ron is filled with the same spirit as I am. Sometimes he can act a little different, but Mike has the same spirit Ron has, as well as Micah. That is part of the unity, understanding that, okay, it's no longer Aaron with his oily beard and it's dripping all over the carpet. We don't want that anyways. It's here. You're all sanctioned with the oil of God. And so um, that's partly why we see this imagery is that, look, all of Israel, all of Israel, that's good. All of Israel is... um, In fact, if you want to jot down Exodus 19, all of them are priests. And this is what God said to them 
in Exodus 19, 19, 4, he says, You yourselves saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You saw that. That was wonderful, wasn't it? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, why is he singling Israel out as his treasured people? Why are they the favorites? Well, what you're about to learn is it isn't that God loves them more than anybody else. It's that God has chosen them for a function, a function. It's not favoritism, it's a function. And it's this, verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There you have it. So Aaron becomes a symbol of what the entire nation is. Ordained with God's oil to bring the lost world, the lonely world, back home. And, of course, the New Testament, Revelation, uh, chapter 1, chapter 5, 1 Peter, chapter 2, both say that we, the church, are a kingdom of priests. So it's the same for us as it was for Israel there. So unity must unity is heavenly, and it must be priestly. And third, unity must have diversity. And this is so important to see because we can really get into clubs in Christianity. Um, you know, certain local congregations are better than others. You have the right to be, to have your preference, of course. I'm, not every church is going to be right for you. That's just, that's just a fact we have to accept. But not every church is worse than the one you prefer. That's just arrogant. Diversity means there's going to be differences. And that's good. Because otherwise, the church would be a totalitarian dictatorship. Everyone must wear black and white. Everyone must march and sing the song in 118 time. I don't know if that's fast or slow, but it sounds good, Richard. Um, everybody must sing in a minor key. Or, I don't know, but the, that's not what we want. We don't want sameness. That's what the Tower of Babel attempted, and it didn't work. God did not make us all be the same. The New Testament goes at length to say that we are different parts of the body. He's given us different functions. Great. That includes different congregations have different functions. Some are amazing at reaching out to the community. Some are really good at prayer. Some are really good at counseling. Some are really good at instructing the scriptures. Some are really good at food pantries. There's so many different varieties of congregations. We're all part of the body. We all have different functions. There's diversity. Because I may or may not like loud worship music, and you may or may not like it. Guess what? There are places that just sing with an organ, and there are places that sing with Reynolds on the drum kit. (laughs) They're just, diversity is important, but this isn't just about where we worship. Diversity is also about the human race. And not everybody is going to look the same think the same, like the same things. Actually, if you think about it, it's really good that America is so diverse because we have perhaps the worst food in the world. What is American food? All of our food comes from somewhere else. All of it. They say the hamburger is American. I don't know if this is true or not, but isn't there a place called Hamburg in Germany? So I don't know. Did it come from there, Sandy? Okay, well, maybe we did invent something, but... um, (laughs) 
Diversity brings flavor. Diversity brings dynamic. Again, going back to the orchestra, what if all you have is the French horn? My wife doesn't like the saxophone. So good thing there's more than just saxophone solos to listen to. Um, diversity. I got ahead, so let's read the verse for diversity. Verse 3. It, unity, is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Do you see the parallel? The oil coming down Aaron's beard, and now there's the dew coming down Mount Hermon and refreshing Zion. Okay, So um, the oil comes off Aaron and hits the people. The dew comes off Hermon and hits Zion. For there Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Hermon. What's Hermon? The dew of Hermon. Hermon is a big mountain range. It was about 9,200 feet high. So, much higher than us. And it was north of Damascus. So if you know where Damascus is, up in the what's modern-day Syria, it was north of Damascus. So this is actually out of Israel's land. Damas- or Hermon is a mountain range in a Gentile region, a pagan region. Interesting, isn't that? Because here, our psalmist says, David says, the dew of Hermon falls on the mountains of Zion. There's a lot of miles between Hermon and Zion, and no, the dew does not drip down Hermon and somehow fly through the air and hit Zion. That's not what David's saying. He's picturing the refreshment of dew from Mount Hermon refreshing a dry area like Jerusalem. But what he had to do was he had to use diversity. He had to reach beyond his people to talk about how that people can be a symbol for blessing for our people. This is diversity. There's, um, so please do not, do not get a narrow mindset that unity means we all have to be the same. Far from it. And I love that we can have different opinions and still walk arm in arm with Christ and each other. That's diversity. What the unity of the body of Christ looks like is it looks like agreement on Christ as our king. But it can be totally different about things like, is the rapture pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Now, that might be a big doctrine to you, and that's fine. But you know what? Some people don't see it as a big doctrine. Are they less anointed than you are? Oh, careful. This is a unity question. This is a unity question. Some people emphasize the sovereignty of God to save us. I can't do anything. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. The same way roadkill that you drove by cannot get itself up and save itself. I couldn't do that any more than that squirrel could. So God had to save me. Some people emphasize the sovereignty of God in salvation. Others emphasize, no, I need to turn from my sin. I need to look at God. I need to believe. And all the things in my life that I've got wrong, it's up to me to make choices to change. So others prioritize our work in the whole progress of walking with God. Hmm, who's more full of the Spirit? 
Hmm. So I grew up um, with an anti-Calvinist outlook. Every pastor I had, Calvinists are evil. Then I grew up and started reading my own books and found out, wait a minute, Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Huh. John Newton was a Calvinist. Huh. And you go down the list, some of the most famous Christians were Calvinists. Imagine that. Hmm. And then some of my most um, influential teachers growing up became hmm, Calvinists. Interesting. But C.S. Lewis, who's one of my most influential, is not. Hmm. Interesting. See what I'm saying? We, we must allow for diversity, but we must agree. Paul said that we are in Christ. Paul said that we are to have the mind of Christ. What's the mind of Christ? There you go. It's not doctrine. Doctrine sure helps us, but the mind of Christ is loving neighbor. The mind of Christ is bringing the lonely home. The mind of Christ is we are all one body. We're a temple. That's the mind of Christ. So unity is heavenly. Unity is priestly. And unity has diversity. Do not follow people who says you must be like them. That's sameness. And that is not unity. That's just the Tower of Babel all over again. And by the way, cults happen that way. Um, people that drink Kool-Aid fall for sameness. That's how those things, it's very dangerous. God knows what he's doing when he allows us to be, when he allows Baskin Robbins to make more than vanilla ice cream. He knows what he's doing. All right. So this drive for unity, give us unity or give us death, because we will die without the solution that people can come together in the kingdom of God and in Christ. And so we see Jesus. We see him as he walks the earth and he, he comes and um, remember the, the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, how he came to her and she was lonely. Why else is she at the well at the hottest part of the day getting water? Women all went together, safety, and fellowship, friendship. They went together in the morning to get water. Why is she at the well alone in the hot of the day? Because she's not allowed to go with the other woman in the morning. She's a loner. She's an outcast. What does Jesus do? He takes his priestly role, and he comes to her. And he gives her a taste of heaven with this dialogue and saying, wait a minute, I have a place for you if you drink my water, not my Kool-Aid, but if you drink from my well, I can't, okay, sorry, that's in your head. But he gives her a place in his kingdom and she's diverse. The Jew, the, the, his Jewish disciples could not believe he was talking to two things, a woman and a Samaritan. But Jesus was all for diversity. And he had to teach his disciples that. They eventually get it. They eventually get it. Because you see um, you see them no longer racist later on. Um, but boy, were the Jews racist against Samaritans early on. Uh, then you see Jesus walking through the streets of Jericho. And up in a tree is a wee little man. Zacchaeus and he's up in the tree not only because he's short but because how many elbows did he get trying to wiggle into the front of the line wouldn't it be easier to go the front well no if you're a tax collector and all your community people see you is ripping them off they're going to give you the elbow if they get the chance 
And if your head is at my elbow height, oh, it's a great chance. I'm sure he learned the hard way. I don't try to wiggle my way in crowds. So he's up in a tree. But Jesus recognizes him. He sees him and he brings him down that tree. He eats with him. Zacchaeus is changed because he now belongs. Zacchaeus is not alone in a tree. Jesus actually, he calls him down that tree, but later Jesus goes up in the tree in his place, doesn't he? He's no longer alone. Jesus is bringing people into the kingdom of God. And then you have Luke 15. Now Luke 15 is well known for three parables. The parable of the lost sheep. You have um, the 99 are left by the shepherd to go after the one. He's lonely. He's in danger. The shepherd goes after him. The lady cleans her house to find that one lost coin. And then, of course, the prodigal son, which ends up being a parable about two sons because the lost son is then found, but the son that was always in the house ends up lost at the end of the story because the father ran after the lost son and brought him home. But when, but when the older son who did everything right saw there's a party for him, and what do you mean he gets a place in the kingdom of God? I have been better than him. He's not a unity player. And now he excludes himself from the party. Jesus tells these stories, what we often miss in Luke 15, because these stories are so great, we miss the context of these stories. Luke 15 verse 1 says that he was eating with sinners. And the Pharisees were around the table looking in, saying, what's up with this sinner dinner? (laughs) And Jesus heard their complaints. And that's when he said, there was a lost sheep. There was a lost coin. There was a lost son. What's he talking about? Who's he talking to? He's not talking to the people at the table because there's unity there. He's talking to the disgruntled complainers, the Pharisees who are on the outside looking in. Jesus was always seeking the lonely, the isolated, the exiled. You may not feel lonely, but maybe you are exiled from the presence of God or from the place of God or from where you know you should be. Jesus ends exile because he always reaches that person. And so this exile, this lonely problem, this disunity problem comes to an end in Christ. And then, and then through his followers, this takes another gigantic leap. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus had ascended into heaven. And 10 days later, the Holy Spirit descends upon his people. This is the oil of God's blessing upon them. This is him anointing his people as his priests. Um, In the temple, there was the candlestick. Um, We often call it a menorah. Um, different than the Hanukkah menorah, which has nine lights. The one in the temple had seven lights. And it was, it was to look like a tree. It was carved of a single piece of gold. And it looked like a tree because there was a stem. And then there were three branches on each side. And on the top were seven lights. So the way that these lights were, fill, uh, were fueled was the priests would every day pour olive oil into them. And then the little tongue of flame would flicker at the top of this lampstand. So what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descends upon the church is you see the tongues of fire because now the people of God have become his lampstand and each believer has become one of the flames of fire fueled by the oil of his spirit. And you know what happens in Acts chapter 2? Everyone is so blown away with this. 
Um, It says that there were certain people gathered there. Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They're dwelling together in unity. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house and they, where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, now, verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So there are Jews here because it's a Jewish festival. They've probably sung the Psalms of Ascent on their way to Jerusalem for this festival called Pentecost. But what's important is that Luke makes sure we see that each of these Jews are coming from another nation because they are now the priestly representatives of these nations to God and God to these nations. The entire world is being included in this day. And then there is language. In verse 7, we see, they were all amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? We know these 12 bumpkins. They fish. They fish. Yeah, they fish. But they speak fishermen. I don't know if that was as bad as a sailor, but they speak fishermen. It was, for lack of a better, well, it wasn't Oxfordian. It wasn't Yale or Harvard. It was Galilean. It was cruder. It was street language. We know them. And yet, are they not? uh, How is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? And then Luke names the regions, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them all in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed. It's like, what does this mean? Isn't this cool? So I've, I, I saw a map in a commentary that put that, that pinpointed each of these regions and then drew a line from that region right to Jerusalem. And what you got was the spokes of a wheel with all these arrows coming right to the center of the earth, Jerusalem. Because this is where it happened. God's drawing everyone, every culture, every people, every place together in unity. It's heavenly, it's priestly, and it's also incredibly diverse. All right, we see that. What, what you may never have known is that the Jews had a liturgy on Pentecost. And in the temple, there would be readings from the book of Ruth. Ruth was the reading of Pentecost. So you don't, you know, you don't go on your beach vacation as a Jew here and have your thriller or your mystery or your romantic novel. You have instead Ruth with you. That's the reading of your holiday. Now, what is the book of Ruth about? The book of Ruth is about a Jewish family who leaves Israel because of a famine. It goes to Moab. And there in Moab, everyone dies but Naomi, the mother, the matriarch. Now, her sons had married two Moabite women before everyone had died. But father died, both of her sons died. So now it's Naomi, fatherless and sonless, which in that culture meant you were alone. 
because your social security was your children. So husband's gone, sons are gone. It's her and um, Orpah and Ruth, two Moabite women. Orpah says, yeah, I'm going to stay with my people. But Naomi realizes Ruth wants to cling to her. So what happens is Naomi finally returns to Israel because there's a good harvest this year. It's time to go back home. Ruth comes with her. Ruth is another race. Ruth is another nationality. Ruth is from a totally different culture and place. And she comes with Naomi to God's land, to God's place, to God's people. Larger story here is you have Israel being kicked out of their land because they sinned against God. One day God's going to bring them back home. And what's he going to bring with them? Every tribe, tongue, nation. That's us. Why do we know the gospel? Because God never said Jews only. And we should never have that approach that certain people don't belong. And so Pentecost of all times, you see this. What, is all, what are all these people doing? The Spirit of God is with everyone. This is crazy. And then the book of Acts from there, it's all about the ripple effects of this and how the church has to struggle with, wait, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks? How are these people associated with what God gave us? And then they had to think through what happened at Pentecost, what happens in the book of Ruth, what does God show us in our scriptures? And it took some time, but they changed They were converted to see that all people belong. And we may have to bend a little bit or give something up. Uh, We may have to start eating pork at our gatherings or something. But Paul talks about that, so that's another thing. But um, they have to adjust to that. And then we come to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5, and we see where the church ends up. So we see Jesus starting this, paving the way. We see in Acts, it's like, boom, the Spirit's for everybody. But then in Revelation chapter 5, the great climax of all the Bible, the book, I mean, is the climax. But here in Revelation 5, we have this great scene. Jesus takes from um, his father on the throne a scroll. And we can talk about that some other day. But it's very important, and he's going to open it. But everyone shouts in praise because Jesus shows up. And this is what they say about him. So this is Revelation 5, verse 9. We actually read this last week, I believe. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Please don't miss the word blood. By your blood. We are all made with the same blood. There's no white blood, there's no black blood, there's no brown blood, there's no yellow blood or red blood. This is all the blood of Christ. He died to bring people together. Next week, I'm actually going to take us, I think unity is so important, we're going to do one more message on unity next week, and we're going to look at the book of Ephesians and see what it has to say about unity. And one of its main messages is that the blood of Christ brought separate people together. And here we see in Revelation, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That word every is inclusive. There wasn't a single tribe, tongue, or nation, or language that was excluded. 
He redeemed people from every single one. And now verse 10, you have made them a kingdom of priests. So here we go. The oil of Aaron, dripping down Aaron's beard. It's right here. Kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So much to say about that verse, but I think enough is said right there. That God has included people from everywhere, and that they are all, all collectively, we make up a kingdom of priests. So, I think between Psalm 133 and what we've read in portions of the New Testament, as a kingdom of God, we are anointed. We have been given the oil of the Spirit to be ordained, to be sent, to be commissioned as priests to the exiled world. Jesus ended exile by bringing people in. The church was ending exile by bringing people in. We should be ending the exile, the isolation, the loneliness of the world by bringing people in. You are Aaron. 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 Some of it will be E-R-I-N. Some of it will be A-A-R-O-N. That's great. It's a, it's a unisex name. We're all Aaron because we're all been given this role to be priests. And here's what priests do. Here's, okay, so when we talk about unity, often we're concerned with this right here. Let's live in unity together. Let's live in unity. And yes, please, let's maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's Ephesians. We'll do that next week. Let's maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Yes, let's live in unity. But God is also concerned that we give out unity. We live in unity, and we must maintain that because it starts here. But then we are ordained as priests to go and represent God to the nations and the nations to God and give out unity. So we find common places with people that we don't think we have much in common with. But, no, I have nothing in common with that person. Really? Because Jesus had every reason not to talk to a lonely Samaritan woman. Samaria, woman, alone, Bad scene to see a religious leader with a, like, what are you getting a date? Is this a hookup? And remember her reputation? She's alone because she's been rumored to sleep around. <laughs> it's going to look really good if someone gets a photo of that, isn't it? What Jesus is concerned about is, what do we have in common? So our priestly ministry is finding that connection with human beings. I want to close. Um, I'm going to close in number 16. I could not shake this passage all week, so I realized I had to include it. It's not just an add-on at the end. (laughs) This sums up everything I'm saying. Do you guys remember number 16, what's going on? Number 16 is the famous rebellion of Korah. So Israel's in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron are leading everything. and And Korah and his sons are like, all right, enough with your priestly rank stuff. Stop telling us what to do. We're all even here. It's like, yeah, you are all even, but God did put Moses over you, so they're rebelling. And Moses is like, um, you know what? Let's see what God has to say about this. And like, they're starting this riot, right? There's this riot about Moses. And what does God do? He judges the riot. And the earth swallows them. But, 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 then... The rest of the congregation 
grumbles, this is number 16, verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of Yahweh. <laughs> and so they, they assemble themselves against Moses and against Aaron. And it looks like it's going to get pretty feisty again. And people are like, oh, the earth is going to open up. Watch this. God's going to get them. So the cloud comes into the tabernacle. But then what happens is a plague begins to move among the people. And people are getting sick and they're dropping one by one. And what Aaron does is this in verse 47. Aaron um, took, took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. What does Aaron do? Aaron takes his incense in the censer and that, that part is not as important as seeing him, God's priest, standing before the people of the earth and the God of heaven and making a way between the two. Aaron saves them from total destruction. And everyone's probably, oh, let's see the earth open up again and let's see them be finished off. And then Aaron says, wait a minute. I want to stand between this. I want to go into the middle here and I want to represent them. I want to save them. And because Aaron stands between the living and the dead, many are spared. Our attitude, if we're to take Psalm 133 um, seriously, Aaron is part of the example of what unity looks like. And now we see what Aaron did in his lifetime. And I think when God says you're a kingdom of priests, he means for us to stand between the two sides at war and to say, this is where kingdom of priests stand. This is where Christ would be. This is where we would be. So I commission you, because God already did, so I can do this. I commission you as priests. The oil's dripping down your clean skin or your hairy skin. (laughs) It's dripping down. Go share it. Let's live in unity so we can give out unity. In the name of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would fill this room and these precious brothers and sisters with your Holy Spirit.